Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 as we continue our study in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, we're actually going to be looking at verse 12 all the way through verse 1 of chapter 4. And so we'll be looking at Philippians 3, 12 through 4, 1 this morning. Before we go to God's Word, let's go again to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we gather around Your Word this morning, we pray that You would show us again Your grace in Your Word, that it was a means of salvation to us for one time, but continues to be a means of salvation to us even as we are growing more and more to be like You. So Lord, we pray that You would open Your Word to our hearts, that You would change us by it, and we pray this in Your holy name. Amen. So recently, Jesse and I were talking, and he was sharing with me a story about a preacher who came to Murray State who was shouting at students as they walked by, preaching a gospel other than one that we find in the Scriptures, which is not abnormal. I remember as a student... Back in the 90s and early 2000s, this man, probably a different man, I'm assuming, would come from time to time, about once every other year or so, and he would do the same sort of thing. He would shout at people. I was a new believer at the time, and hearing this man shout about how people who had any sin at all, actually, were going to go to hell. And so it was kind of a strange thing for me, so I wanted to speak to him. He and his wife spoke to people about how they could obtain this idea of a sinless perfection, which is the idea that in this life a believer could, and not only could, but should live a life of sinless perfection. The preacher even claimed that he hadn't sinned for 12 years, which was, which was shocking to me considering the way that he was treating people out in front of the curse center. Uh, the thing he said to me even, was uh, didn't count as sinless, but maybe he did. Maybe the Lord did. I don't know. He told me that I was going to hell because I had Greek letters on that day. I will not say what I said to him in here. Um, but he told many others similar things for the same kinds of dumb reasons that he was coming up with. And it sounds almost silly when you speak about someone like that, right? It sounds almost like a caricature of reality or even like like you're watching a cartoon. It almost seemed that way as I was walking on campus that day. It was really strange. Yet secretly, if we're really honest with ourselves, we really like that kind of thing. Because it gives us a goal and we can measure ourselves against that goal. right? And more importantly, we can measure others against that goal. We love a standard that isn't Scripture because we love gods that aren't God. And we seek out a Savior that isn't Jesus. In our passage today, the Apostle reminds us of how our salvation is rooted in Christ. But not only our salvation, but also our sanctification. Or this idea that we are being made more and more to be like Christ. Being made more holy. That while perfection is definitely the end goal and will one day happen in glory... That is something that we can, again, only achieve when we're finally with Jesus. Paul no longer awaits that day as he is with the Lord now, but we do, and while we do, he has some instructions for us here. 
He looks at two different camps, one being like the preacher at Murray State on that day, and another being the one that actually offers us hope and truth in this dying world. As we consider it, we'll look at the false god of sinless perfection measured against the god of the Bible, looking at two main ideas, the god of right now versus the god of eternity. So with me, or look with me then at Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 3, starting at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any, if any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join me in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So remember last week, just a bit of context, we looked at a very important passage from Philippians 3. We looked at verses 7 through 11, which essentially spelled out the very plain truth of the Gospels, the idea that there are the things of this world that they are lost, and that in Christ all things are to be considered rubbish when compared to what we have in Christ. What we have in Christ is the very righteousness of God in Christ. We are set right for all time because of the work of Jesus. And there's nothing, nothing that could possibly compare with that. We talked about how we are, that how part of that was our sanctification. And we talked about what that sanctification meant, that we, that we would know Him and the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. This is something that is the ongoing action in the life of a believer, that we would become more and more like Christ in His life and His death, growing in godliness, sharing in His sufferings. So you can imagine that hearing teaching like this, that there would be some that would want to rush this process, right? That we would want to rush into this idea of sanctification and make it happen more and more quickly in our lives. Why not rush it? It's a good thing, right? Why not want more and more holiness for your life? I've been going to CrossFit for many years now, and I'm not one of those that talks about CrossFit all the time, I promise. Sometimes I mention it, this time it works. 
They're super excited. These new folks come in all the times and they're super excited to get started. You know, they've got this new idea. They want to get fit. They want to do these things, which is all good, right? And then they get in their first workout and they sprint right out of the gate for the first couple of minutes. And then after a few minutes, I'll look over at them and they're just laid out on the floor. Because it's all about pacing. You can't get in shape in one workout. There's no need to try. It's a process. It takes time. Sanctification is a process. It takes time. While we are alive in Christ, we are being made alive more and more each day. Shorter Catechism, question 35 says this concerning sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. When we think we're rushing it, we're really just stacking on false righteousness, which ends in disaster. An example would be shouting at frat boys in front of the Curse Center, claiming to represent Jesus. Many times that disaster is a life of lawlessness, kind of the opposite end of that, right? Rather than thinking oneself to be perfect, just being okay with the fact that you're completely lawless where a believer continues a life of sin in spite of their newfound righteousness. Rather than trust the sanctification process, they move farther and farther away from it, eventually showing themselves to be unbelievers. The apostle is sure to make sure that we understand that he hasn't arrived yet, right? We look at verses 12 and 14 with me, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because of Christ Jesus. For He has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is Paul the Apostle saying that he has not arrived, but he presses on. He's not giving up. He's also not trying to jump over this process of sanctification. He presses on, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to the goal. It is a work that the Spirit is doing in us, in our lives. And it is a work that we are called to do ourselves, as we read earlier in Philippians, that we are to work out our salvation, understanding what that means. Two ways of doing this are on display here in this passage. And first, we're going to deal with the wrong way, looking at the first point, the God of right now, focusing particularly on verses 18 and 19. So for Paul, the understanding is that we are obtaining this, right? That we have obtained a righteousness from Christ, and now we are, as the Catechism says, more and more to die to sin, to live unto that righteousness that we have. More and more this is happening in us. So what does the alternative do? What is the opposite of this? Well, in verse 18 and 19, he speaks as of these as enemies of the cross. Look with me again at verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame 
with minds set on earthly things. There's a bit of sadness here for Paul, right? As he speaks of them in tears, as he's maybe speaking of fellow Jewish folks who believe that circumcision is the path of salvation. It could be any sort of pagan in that early day that believed in any kind of false gospel, which is no gospel at all. A belief in a false gospel is a belief in a false Christ, which only leads to destruction. Verse 19 gives us a strange look at what one of these false gods might look like. There's lots that have been written about this verse 19 and this idea that their God is in their belly. could be referring to lots of different things. encourage you to study that if you so choose, but just know that there's, there's a lot of things that people think this could be. It's been, but it's definitely linked to the next clauses there in verse 19, that their, their end is their destruction, their God is in their belly. What does that mean? That their glory is in their shame, that their minds are set on earthly things. So we can determine that to be lots of different things. The whole idea is that, that while the Christian is waiting for a heavenly reality that was slowly, that we are slowly moving towards over the course of our lifetime, the unbeliever sees their perfection in one way or the other here on earth. Their God is in their belly is this picture of self-indulgence. Either a religion that rewards acts like circumcision and adherence to strict dietary laws and temple practices, or a picture of lawless living, a life where the pleasures of this world are the ultimate goal. And we use a similar term in our own language, right? This idea of the God in our belly. We, we call it navel-gazing. This idea that we spend an inordinate amount of time indulged in self-contemplation concerning our own value, which is really just self-worship. Whether it's being hung up on our own personal righteousness, counting the days since we last sinned, or gazing at our literal stomachs, filling them with the pleasures of life and forsaking biblical morality. Whatever the case, their end is destruction. And this life is to glory in their shame. They have set their minds on earthly things and have made themselves enemies of the cross. Understand here, they are called enemies of the cross because they would see themselves be made holy by the things of this world. This is completely opposite of what Christ has done for us. Jesus died on the cross in order to make an unholy people holy in order to set them aside for his own use in order to sanctify them only the work of Jesus can do this by the one who who thinks that the law can do this for him is an enemy of Christ is an enemy of the cross the ones that thinks that the satisfactions of this world can make one holy they're an enemy of the cross and before we get on a high horse Start to point fingers or start, we got someone in our mind that we're thinking of. Yeah, that's, that's that person. They're that. They're an enemy of the cross because of the way they live or how much they think of themselves. Jesus only gave his life for one type of people, his enemies. That was you. If it weren't for his work, we'd be right there along with the rest who see their God in their belly and their end is their destruction. It is the work of Christ that separates us from the people that Paul mentions here, not ourselves. 
Our God is not in our belly. This is why it makes absolutely no sense for a believer to be tied up in any kind of work that would have them earn their salvation through works or forsake their salvation through wild living or just any kind of living that is not according to the Scriptures. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, the one whose God is in his belly, the one who sows to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The message here is for the one who would seek to save themselves by their own works. For those like the pastor at MSU that day who thought he was holy because of the work that he was doing. For sowing to the flesh, you will reap corruption. But this is also for the one who has forsaken their call to holiness and exchanged it for the pleasure of this world. For sowing to the flesh, you too will reap corruption. The unbeliever is constantly tossed to and fro by the wind and waves of this world. Seeking out how they can save themselves, how they can deliver themselves from this world of sin, from this world of doubt and death all around us. But the believer lives in the same world. And as we all know, we understand this struggle. We still have this struggle with the world around us. That pastor at MSU that day lied to himself believing that he was done with that struggle. He was not because he was still here. But for the rest of us, we need solid truth in order to combat the lies that we tell ourselves. And Paul tells us this in this passage. That brings us to the next point, the God of eternity. I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 again just so we can kind of get some context. But I really want to focus on 15 through 16. So let's look at this passage again together. Now that I've already obtained, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so here's our focus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, if in anything you think otherwise... God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. So in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Christian maturity comes with a right view of personal sin. And on the other side of that same coin of Christian maturity, a right view of our deliverance in Christ. A right view of our personal sin and a right view of our deliverance in Christ. A mature Christian understands that they ought to be putting sin to death. Becoming like Christ in His death. They understand that even though they have the grace of God in Christ, they should not be using that as a license to go on sinning. Rather, in order that they may show themselves to be in Christ. Yet they also understand that this action of putting sin to death in no way betters their position 
in Christ or before Christ. It doesn't change their position around other believers either. Whereas the unbeliever gazes at their own belly and their glory is their shame, the mature believer in their, in their work to put their own sin to death fixes their eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith, and their glory is in Him and Him alone. And what are we to do if we think otherwise? Well, Paul gives us instructions here, right? God will reveal these things to us. Well, how does He reveal these things to us? How does He reveal anything to us? The ordinary means by which He normally communicates His grace to us. His Word, prayer, the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints, these things that the people of God ought to be doing. Why is the preaching of God's Word necessary? So that believers know their sin and yet they know their Savior. Why is prayer necessary? So the believer can confess their sin and receive comfort from Jesus. Why are the sacraments necessary? Why do we have this each Sunday here before us? So that we can see, taste, and touch the work of our Lord. It's not enough for us to simply believe them. He knew that we needed to see them, and so He gave us the supper. He gave us baptism that we might see these things that are going on in our lives and in the lives of others around us. Why must we fellowship with one another? Why can't we just kind of do this on our own? Because that's what we really all want to do anyway, right? In order that we might bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, Galatians 6. So that we can remind one another of the truth that we have. Just as Paul does here in verse 16. To let us hold true to the truth that we have obtained. And he finishes his words to the believer below in those verses 20 through verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, reminding us of where our citizenship lies. So look with me at verse 20 and following. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We are not like those whose God is their belly and whose glory is their shame. Our God is God Almighty. Our glory is in the Son of God, our Savior Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not of this earth. The unbeliever sets their minds on earthly things. We know that these earthly things are passing away. Here today, gone tomorrow. Just like us. And we await that day when we'll be transformed in body. This lowly body will become glorious. The perishable puts on the imperishable when we have obtained the resurrection from the dead. We see that up there in verse 11 of chapter 3. This idea of obtaining the resurrection of the dead. So what do we do in the meantime? We're waiting for this thing to happen. We're waiting to be more and more like Christ. The Christian life is this constant waiting, struggling with sin, knowing that Christ is doing a work in us, longing for this day that will one day come. What do we do in the meantime? You've heard me talk about this a lot if you've been here any length of time. It would be easy for us to just sit and wait, to hold up, 
to never speak of our faith with anyone, to just go about our lives as if our faith wasn't important to us, to live like everyone else, believing that this life is all there is, all the while knowing that we are on this sinking ship. We can just pack our bags, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die and wait by the Bible bus stop for Jesus to come pick us up. But we aren't called to that kind of life. It's very tempting. I definitely understand when you look at the crazy in the world today, we seem to be at a fever pitch of a new kind of crazy every day. Just when I think, okay, maybe now it's going to settle down a little bit. No, it doesn't. It just gets crazier. It would be easy to rest in these last few verses of chapter 3 that our citizenship lies in heaven and stop there. Right? And just, okay, I'm just waiting. Or how do, how do we say it? Kind of this over-spiritualized way of thinking about our time here on earth. I'm just passing through and leave this world the way that we found it. As citizens of heaven, not making much of a fuss while we're here. But look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Did Paul leave the way, the world the way that he found it? Therefore, my brothers, whom I long, who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. These are the words from a man who loved people, who gave his time, who gave of his comfort, who invested his life, literally invested his life in the life of the church, in the life of the people of the church. When he gives them instructions to stand firm, they would listen because they loved him. This wasn't just coming from some man someplace. This was coming from Paul, their brother, who considered them his crown and his joy. We are called to live a life that more and more is dying to sin and living to righteousness. What better way for us to do that than to live like Jesus did, giving His life so that others might know Him. For the unbeliever here, hear the words of this passage, your God is in your belly. That is to say, you believe that your own end and your own purpose is good enough. Yet God's Word informs us otherwise. It tells us that your end is your destruction. It doesn't have to be that way. Scriptures are clear over and over and over again. It does not have to be that way. Jesus came to save His people from their sins, and you too can be saved if you call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can be saved today. For the believer here, this is our call to action both in our own lives and in the world around us. What should we be doing in our own lives? Well, we should be pushing toward the goal to become more and more like Christ. Not that we might have more Jesus. That's not possible. We can't have more of Jesus than we already have. But so that we might become more and more like Him. Why would we want to do that? So that His name would be glorified in all the earth so that the world might know that God might be glorified, so that more and more we would show our glory to be Jesus Christ, our Lord, not in ourselves, but in Him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, live as if the words of the Gospel are true. 
Press on toward the prize. Stand firm in your faith that the world might know Jesus. Let's go to Him in prayer.